What we've seen recently is a wish to politicize the writing studied by university students or school pupils in order to promote the narrative that the Western, the European civilization as we know it, has been in fact destructive and has done nothing but oppress. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, Marie Cartha Dauda, lecturer in French at Ariel College, Oxford. Marie's college kept his statue of Cecil Rhodes when other historical figures were toppled. None of us is innocent if we link innocence to the deeds of the previous generations, but at some point we also have to introduce a historic separation and to accept that, yes, bad things have happened all around in the past and it is good to study them, but these should not condition the way we address or judge one another nowadays. Marie talks about the need for beauty in the modern world. Someone from anywhere in the world standing in front of Notre Dame Cathedral would have a feeling of awe because the people who built it were telling the story of their faith and it took many centuries to finish it and to have this book of stone that tells of what people used to believe. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Marie Cathedra, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. Do you think it's fair, this idea of looking at Cecil Rhodes as a colonialist and an imperialist? Well, he was doubtlessly a colonialist and an imperialist, as was pretty much any British man of his time. He just had the ideas of his era, which were that the the Western world, the Western civilization, had a duty to expand and share the knowledge, progress, and so on and so forth. What's interesting about Cecil Rhodes is that in spite of all the bad press he gets nowadays, he was actually rather progressive for his time, creating, for instance, this colorblind uh, scholarship that allowed any student, regardless of race, to apply and spend some time in Oxford. And similarly, what he, with the plan he had, was to allow any black person, any black man capable of reading and writing to vote and to exert some sort of democ democratic right uh, in, uh, in South Africa. So we have this, this image of him as being an evil dictator, murderer, and so on and so forth. Everyone in his time was an imperialist by the mere fact of belonging to the empire, although there were some voices that were critical of the whole imperial enterprise. What I think is more interesting about him is uh, the, the aspect of his thought that goes against the grain of his time in which we see that he was much more of a paternalist than a colonialist, and he just tried to exert this ideal of uh, well, benevolent authority towards everyone under his orders, be it the black or the white people, and his tomb is still tended by the, the African tribe whom he protected, in a way, from their long-term adversaries. So the situation was much more complicated than just he did not like black people and wanted all of them exterminated. Mm. Do you think it's an ongoing issue that we 
take our modern values and try and put them onto something from 100, 200 years ago. And the, the, the situations were so different. Yes, of course, the situations were rather different. It's very hard. Well, there's that whole trend at the moment of colorized videos of what London or Paris would have looked like in the late 19th, early 20th century. We cannot ask people of that period to step into our modern shoes just as we cannot pretend to know exactly what they thought or why they would think it. So we can approach these matters from an intellectual perspective, of course, but with a lot over distance and respect. So we talk a lot of critical dis distance, which is good, but the distance can also be respectful and bear into account the fact that we cannot be in these people's place. We cannot know what it would have been to live in their situation with the intellectual um, frameworks that they had, the different, the different paradigms that they were living through. I recently spoke to Professor Ian Pace, and he's a founding member of Britain's First Council to support academic freedom in universities. I asked him, you know, what are the reasons why you need to found this council? And one of the big ones he said was decolonization and how that's affecting academia. You teach French literature. You must spend quite a bit of your time uh, looking at uh, what dead white guys have written, really. I mean, what are your thoughts on removing them from the curriculum and the decolonization movement? Well, the decolonization movement had the wish to change the focus from the established canon, which is, as you said, mainly written by dead white men, and give more importance to black writers, female writers, and so on and so forth, to focus on the experience of the margins. From a strictly academic perspective, there's nothing wrong with wanting to see what the minorities were saying. I worked on the, the contrast between the 19th century French canon and the minor authors that did not in fact make it through the canon. And it, it, it is a fascinating question. Why would we read, uh, for instance, Baudelaire and Victor Hugo and so on and so forth rather than Jean Laurent or another sort of forgotten writer of a similar period. The canon has never been a set fixed thing. It's always evolutive and depends on what people are interested in at a specific time. But what we've seen recently is a wish to politicize the writings studied by university students or school pupils in order to promote the narrative that the Western, the European civilization as we know it, has been in fact destructive and has done nothing but oppress uh, women, uh, people of color, sexual uh, orientation minorities, and so on and so forth. The trouble with this perspective is that it is fundamentally destructive. It doesn't wish to transmit and preserve so much as it wishes to criticize and destroy the reputation of the established authors. The problem when focusing, for instance, on what the, the let's say, the Afro-Caribbean French literature has produced recently, rather than considering the long tradition of French literature, is that, in fact, the, the authors of the Francophone sphere in the 20th century 
were in fact deeply steeped in the 19th, 18th, 17th, 16th, even medieval canon. And they knew lots about the French literature that French children nowadays don't really hear about. And similarly, well, you couldn't have Toni Morrison if you don't have Shakespeare. All of these writers might have had some distance, might have had a complex attitude towards the, the wide canonical authors, but they were also experts in them in a way. No one just woke up one day and said, I'm going to be an author without having first read the great things of the past. And the narrative promoted in the decolonization curriculum is that everything that happened in the 20th century, before the 20th century has to be either discarded or reassessed. And now we have to focus on marginal experience. While this marginal experience is, if we want to see it honestly, already rooted and intertwined in this continuous tradition. So the other negative consequence that it has is that it doesn't transmit the love for certain literary traditions. So if I tell you, would you like to take uh, a course on Shakespeare and see that he was an evil, racist, misogynist? That's not, that's not what is going to make that author look interesting. I believe that transmission is, above all, a matter of love and appreciation, which can come with a, well, some distance towards writers' personal opinions. But in my generation, we were taught to keep, uh, here again, a, a certain respectful distance towards certain authors' private lives. So for instance, well, when I was growing up, um, homosexuality was not yet something that could be discussed openly in classrooms. But we, when we raised the question of Proust's homosexuality in a literature class, mm my literature professor said something like, this is none of our business because here we are looking at what he does with words and the beauty and craft of his style and so on and so forth. And that in a way is much more respectful than focusing on the fact that someone is a, well, represents an oppressed minority. If the only thing I say about you is that you were oppressed and evil people did bad things to you, doesn't make you as good as if I say that you created wonderful things it, that allow everyone to touch something about our shared humanity, the experience of estrangement, the experience of rejection, or the experience of passionate love. All of that is not a matter of skin color. And it is something that we can appreciate no matter what an, author, an author's skin color is whether we ascribe it to the fact of belonging to an ethnic minority or just to the fact of being a genius author who manages to touch upon something as specific and general at the same time as what makes our human experience something that can be shared and transmitted. Mm. So do you think this is a movement to kind of replace or rewrite our history just from one dimension, just kind of looking at ethnicity and forgetting about all these other factors as you talk about. Yes, so the, uh, the idea of rewriting history is something that we have heard about a lot. And just as the canon has 
permanently been rewritten, reshaped. History, too, is constantly rewritten. And sometimes it's not a good thing that it is rewritten. Sometimes the rewriting aims to reassess or offer a different perspective. And sometimes the rewriting uses this perspective for a specific political agenda. I do believe that we have moved from a genuine intellectual interest in broadening our understanding of the past, which can go through exploring the experience of minorities and so on and so forth, that's not the issue. But we have discarded this genuine intellectual interest for something that ends up negating the truth, that is to say, if, let's say, for instance, while going back to Cecil Rhodes, this man also happened to do some good things, that's not important and it's better not to talk about it because what we're talking about now is how white men were evil. Mm. So rewriting history will happen, but we have to ensure sort of well, intellectual duty that the change of perspective does not come with a complete rejection of one of the aspects of history. History is always complicated. There's always the side of the winner and the side of the loser, no matter who they are. But deciding that we will only tell the story from the perspective of the victims, even if we presume that it had been told for too long from the perspective of the winners, does not lead to any betterment, to any better understanding of what we have been going through over the last centuries. Who do you think is as much about omission as what, about what's included? Like, for example, if I said Britain was heavily involved in the slave trade, but Britain was also leading the way to stop the slave trade at a time when it was the norm, if you only knew the first item, you'd have a very different view of history from knowing both items. Yes, exactly, and knowing um, the different shades of it, a certain question can be crucial. So, for instance, the fact that there had been slave trade in Africa long before Europeans ever started the colonial enterprise, or the fact that the Islamic conquest was heavily linked to the enslavement of people regardless of their skin color. All of these are things that we wouldn't really talk about because we're promoting this sort of um, noble savage image of Africa or of any ethnic minority, as in they remain in this state of original intellectual purity, they couldn't do anything wrong, and everything terrible in their life started when Europeans meddled with it. That is, in fact, extremely racist, because not only does it deny the factual history of Africa, of Asia, of America, but it also removes any form of personal agency or ethic, ethical responsibility from the people involved just because they happen to be from this or that ethnic minority, but a minority from the European perspective. So all of this paradoxically remains extremely Western-centered, extremely European, and much less respectful of the individuality of the people that are presented as victims than some of the most well, fierce colonialists of the 19th century, who at least had the honesty to recognize that, well, you know, cannibalism would happen 
slavery would happen, rape would happen. So all of these aspects did exist. And it would perhaps make the conversation smoother if we taught in schools that if each and every one of us is alive today, it's because our ancestors have done terrible things. None of us is innocent if we link innocence to the deeds of the previous generations. But at some point, we also have to introduce a historic separation and to accept that, yes, bad things have happened all around in the past, and it is good to study them, but these should not condition the way we address or judge one another nowadays. Another big issue Professor Price said was affecting academic freedom is gender identity ideology. He gave the example of Kathleen Stock, and I know that happened at your university. You talked a little bit about how gender identity ideology is affecting academic life, as you see it. Well, one thing I find fascinating about the way gender identity is discussed in university nowadays is that when I was in university, we would talk about gender studies. Mm. And it was fascinating because we would talk about the evolution of feminism and therefore the evolution of what it means to be a woman. Mm. So if you go from Mary Wollstonecraft to Judith Butler, the understanding of what womanhood means has changed a lot and its political implications have changed a lot too. Now what we see is, well, I'm not counting my waves of feminism, but we're, we're perhaps at the fourth wave, uh, the wave that paradoxically goes back to the idea that sex is not biological. It is merged with gender as something that is beyond the material reality. It's more of a feeling, an inward intuition of who you really are. This is, in fact, in direct contradiction with the emergence of the distinction between sex and gender that aim to say that, for instance, I can be biologically female, but at some point in my life, I would take on an attitude that would be masculine. It would be associated with traditional masculine gender roles rather than with feminine gender roles. That was not aiming to deny my feminine biology. And it can, in fact, be extremely interesting to see how these things operate in narratives when you see, for instance, a female character becoming strong and powerful and uh, deciding to take a sword and go fight for her country. Yes, fair enough. But the interesting thing is the contrast between the expectations and the attitude and that was the aim of the distinction between sex and gender. Or, for instance, if you have a male character who becomes extremely sacrificial and tender in a way that is usually associated with motherhood, mm. that makes this character much more interesting than to say, well, he feels this way, therefore he must be a woman. And there's something extremely reductive in the loss of this nuance. And as far as Kathleen Stock is concerned, she would be on the mild side of the trans-exclusionary uh, radical feminist movement. She's not as radical as many of the TERFs, but she puts this, the, the distinction between matters of policy and matters of safeguarding. So, for instance, let's say, well, 
the shared spaces in the university and there would be also spaces that are not shared for sex-based reasons and that's a matter of safety for the women around. It doesn't mean that every trans-identifying man is a rapist, it just means that for that single one it is worth taking the measures that would protect all the women. So I found it very surprising that such obvious distinctions were overlooked in the university just for the sake of taking on a fashionable trend that is nothing but yet another trend among the, the, the long continuum of changes and questions about what uh, what the connections are between our biology and our social attitudes. Do you think we are seeing a, a kind of replacement of you know, common sense and safeguarding with a, um, a kind of revolutionary attitude, if you like? Uh, in a sense, yes. And I would lean towards saying that it is a first world problem yeah. because we can afford to do so because there is enough safety around that we could focus on the tiny elements that would make someone feel uncomfortable. And you would see that shift when it comes to talking about microaggressions, right. for instance. Instead of talking about blatant, explicit crime, we will focus on microaggressions because, I don't know, suppose you ask me about my hairstyle or suppose you ask me where I really come from, I am expected to act outraged because this is an aggression in what is overall a relatively safe environment. The trouble is that we forget that it took a lot of effort and also a lot of blood to make Europe safe in such a way that we could now focus on how to make each other feel comfortable by not asking where you come from or what your what's the origin of your hairstyle or whatever. So the trouble with this attitude is that we lose the greater picture. We lose the, the, the understanding that the safety we enjoy nowadays that allows us to try and accommodate for everyone resulted from very deep tensions that had to be solved at times through very violent conflict. Or do you think this is cyclical and we will go back to the hard times again? <laughs> well, you know, hard times, strong men, yeah. uh, etc., etc. I don't know, I don't know at which stage of the cycle we would be. Many people talk about the decline of Western civilization. Let's say that the people who are in it, don't care for it enough to value and appreciate the benefits that everyone derives from it. Maybe it's still time to reassess and appreciate and decide that, well, after all, the West is not that bad. <laughs> it's actually a rather nice place where many people do come and migrate and settle down. Uh, perhaps, th perhaps there's still time, but you know, there has there have been worse periods in the history of humanity. So I, I don't think it's time to pull out the violins and be all maudlin about it. Worse times have happened, uh, 
which doesn't mean that we shouldn't try our best to preserve and transmit what has been entrusted to us so far. On this subject of, of how good the West is, I wanted to talk to you a bit about beauty. I know this is an interest of yours. Um, so you mentioned the colorized videos. I was watching one of London in the 1930s. People just look so beautiful. They're all presented so well. There's loads of excellent hats. Um, but it seems in modern days we've kind of lost those beauty standards to some degree. If you look at buildings, buildings created some time ago, you really can't compare them to modern buildings. Uh, music, classical music that was created before, it's, it's so beautiful compared to modern music. And do you think we're, we're losing the, the connection with beauty and, and the ability to create and appreciate it? I think what we have certainly lost is uh, the idea that we deserve beauty, and not only do we deserve it, we, we actually need it. So your, your comment about the, the clothes and the hats in these London videos is a very interesting one because the reason why people wore hats was that they wanted to keep away from the cold mainly or keep away from the sun. There was a very practical element to that too or you know, tweed jackets or tailored suits, they served a function which was to preserve the body and the, the, the use of natural materials such as wool or the more expensive silk was the default option because man-made materials were not as uh, well were, were not available at all in the 1930s the switch that happened i believe and that architecture tells us about a lot is that nowadays we have the impression that things have to be either f strictly functional so that's the le corbusier idea that your house is the space you inhabit and nothing more so it can just be a, a flat rectangle with things in it and you walk in it and that's it and there is no sense of homemaking for instance um, but w when you look for instance at the buildings the beautiful buildings that have been destroyed in the United States and replaced by modernist architecture I think there's a deliberate statement that posits clean clear lines as the new aesthetic ideal but also in such a way that removes the trace of the human hand. So what can be fascinating about old buildings, churches for instance, you'd see all these tiny details, all the stained glass, etc. And you'd think many centuries ago, a human hand has made this, this specific object. And now we're moving towards the ideal of the serialized, anonymous, transposable, so if you look at some buildings in New York, in Singapore, in Paris, in Taiwan, they're all the same. You could be anywhere looking at a skyscraper. It would be the same architecture as on the other end of the world because the hand of someone from that actual place has not interfered with the construction. And I think that's the ideal where going towards nowadays and many people are rejecting it and I think it's a good thing. We deserve beautiful things, we deserve to tell our stories through the things we build instead of pretending that they have been generated by extremely wise computers. Mm. Do you think that beauty connects us with our, our traditions and our heritage to some degree? I think beauty links us to tradition, well first what that 
idea of uh, transmission through the uh, handcraft, something that has been made by an individual in a certain period of time. But there's also something literally transcendent about beauty. I'm absolutely sure that someone from anywhere in the world standing in front of Notre Dame Cathedral would have a feeling of awe because the people who built it were telling the story of their faith and it took many centuries to finish it and to have this book of stone that tells of what people used to believe. So it's not that they believed in columns or they believed in Gothic architecture. They believed in God, a God who deserved beauty as a form of worship and they wanted to give God the best they had and that gave us the wonders of medieval architecture all around the world. A lot of our greatest examples of beautiful things are from people who are creating something to you know, respect the divine, as, as you talked about with uh, Notre Dame and churches, etc. Do you think there's a connection between people's you know, reverence for the divine and belief in otherworldly things and their ability to create beauty? Yes, absolutely. So I was talking about that feeling of beauty that uh, connects people through sacred buildings all around the world you would go and see a temple, one of the many temples in, uh, in, uh, around China or uh, in Indonesia, they keep being rebuilt. It's not something that is set in stone, but let's say where well, you have a part of the building made of wood that needs replacement. It will be replaced, but it would be replaced in the same way, carrying on and keeping it as it were. And a Westerner landing there would still understand this is not a restaurant, this is not a McDonald's, this is not a place where people just come in and do whatever. This is a place that is set apart and the beauty that we associate with a place of worship is meant to indicate that this is a place set apart. That works for the places of worship but it also works for homes. Homes should be sacred. They're the sanctuary of your family, your my family, whatever. We have a place where we preserve what we hold on to and we have a duty to make it as beautiful as possible within our means. And it doesn't necessarily need to be ridiculously expensive. And I think that's one of the other downsides of moral mentality. We believe that what is beautiful is what is expensive and what is expensive is what is beautiful. It doesn't cost much in terms of money to do something with love, but it will be more beautiful than something made um, in an automated way. Yeah, there's this uh, writer called Paul Kingsnorth, and he's doing this series of sacred wells. And these are kind of really old wells in Ireland. Mm. They've been there for a long time, and they're just in, in the middle of nowhere. But they're really beautiful, but obviously no one spent any money on them at all. Yes, but the, the essential thing is that what is worth doing is worth doing well. So why not just put in all our creativity and efforts and sense of dedication in it? And I think what, what the young generation nowadays needs is an outlet for creativity that would be more permanent than TikTok or being a YouTube influencer. And there is so much time and creativity that is wasted and that is at the mercy of servers that 
day a server shot and happened at the British Library not long ago, a whole part of the human knowledge is just inaccessible. That's it. It's For the moment, it's gone. We might retrieve it, but for the moment, we don't have it. So perhaps reconnecting young people with material reality, with the beauty of making something with your hands rather than uploading things in the the esoteric cloud. I have no idea how many works of art are currently just solely di dig digital. They, they will never be seen in their material form. So perhaps just, yes, re-engaging with the real world, with, the, with its difficulties, its own challenges, but just getting our hands dirty with reality. I think that's what we would need to do. And finally, I know you're working on a book. I wonder if you could just tell us what that will be about. Well, it's on the idea of belonging. As you probably know, I, I'm um, a, a square immigrant. Is it how you say it in English? I migrated first to France and then from France to right. Britain. So uh, that makes me quite enthusiastic about the things I discover in a country that are specific to that country. So we talk a lot about multiculturalism nowadays and multiculturalism would be the statement that all cultures can coexist randomly in one space and things will go well because everyone would do what he or she wants. Uh, I advocate for the richness of multi-ethnic societies but provided that we maintain the genuine character of the countries where they happen. So. There is such a thing as a French tradition. There is such a thing as an English, a Welsh, an Irish tradition. And it's damaging to pretend that all of that can just be erased and become cosmopolitan. So the book is, in a way, an assessment based on my own experience of the, the importance of giving multi-ethnic societies a place where they would belong and where they would know this is the overarching framework. And if there is a conflict, we resort to the, these authorities. Or if there is a decision to make between this custom and that custom, we will go with the local custom. Well, we look forward to it. Marie Cartha thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me.